Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Holyrood Sources. We are recording on Thursday the 7th of December. I'm Kyle McDonald. Also here, Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Hello. And Andy McKeever, former Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Andy, hello. Hello, hello. First of all, apologies from me. The reason we're recording on a Thursday instead of a Wednesday is my fault. Uh, Completely my fault. I am reporting on Boris Johnson at the COVID inquiry. Um, for Times Radio, which I'm now, what, a day and a half into. And, um, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. It's quite, I think what's really interesting, actually, is seeing Boris Johnson in a, in a space where he's not in control and he's kind of being grilled a bit by a KC and he can't... It's so serious he can't sort of make many jokes and be his usual kind of cheery, chappy self. Anyway, that's what's been preoccupying my brain. Uh, right, lots to discuss today. We want to discuss education standards in Scotland. We want to discuss this emergency cabinet meeting that's on the way on Thursday evening, seemingly ahead of the budget. Uh, we'll get into that, but first, some notable and exciting admin for you. Um, this is to announce with you, our, or for you, our latest event. So this is going to be in January, uh, at the end of January. The Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce have asked us, would you believe, uh, to join them in hosting a podcast special with dinner in Aberdeen at the end of January. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't believe uh, we've reached this stage, but it's great. It's really good. So basically, what the whole point, the whole focus of the thing is to discuss energy, energy policy, to consider the future of energy for Scotland um, and what energy policy needs to be, basically. Uh, so that's the discussion. We, we sort of touch on it quite a lot. Um, on on Hollywood sources as it is. So this is a whole evening dedicated to discussing energy, the energy transition. We're going to bring together some leading politicians. We're going to debate and discuss what energy policy should be from here on out. So 
if you would like to come to uh, Aberdeen on January the 30th, 2024, for dinner and a podcast recording that you can be a part of, then you need to go to agcc.co.uk, as in Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce, agcc.co.uk. That's where you can get tickets. You can bring your friends and buy a table and have a huge night out if you really want to. Um, so this is Aberdeen and, Je- and Grampian Chamber of Commerce trying to really sort of create a more reasoned debate about our energy future and a pragmatic path to net zero, leaving nobody behind. And here come Hollywood sources to lead the discussion. They had Good. me at dinner, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought, can I just say, right? <laughs> The way that you said dinner, followed by it was sponsored by Aberdeen Grampian Chamber of Commerce, suggested to me that you thought you better put that on the record because it's in Aberdeen. They might not fork out for the dinner as well. Uh, and I, I take big umbrage to that. Um, no, but well, yeah, I'm just—you just don't have to—you don't have to bring your own dinner. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. It will be actually provided. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to say as well that for those of you who are our listeners who were at the Hamza Yusuf podcast, mm. you remember that there was some exclusive for your ears only content uh, in which I uh, regaled the story about Sean Connery. I've got a couple more that I'm going to do on the energy dinner as well. So if do you, don't, you? you don't fancy the energy dinner, come up and hear about Sean Connery. But I hear it's already <laughs> almost, it's, it's halfway sold out, isn't it? Already. Yeah, so we got an update. We sold half the tickets already. So um, yeah, so go for it. If you want to be there, then do it now. agcc.co.uk is where you can buy tickets. And there's loads more info on there as well. But basically, it's us three um, having a sensible conversation around dinner about energy and some leading politicians as well is worth saying uh, right good right let's crack on with what we want to talk about today um go and buy your tickets and let us know if you've got them email anytime hello at hollywoodsources.com right first of all i want to talk about alistair darling uh, with you guys um alistair darling died sadly last week former chancellor leading labor politician and of course he led the better together campaign around the independence referendum as well i think one thing that has struck me actually is the absolute consensus and unanimous um, outpouring of sympathy, but also affection for Alistair Darling as being a public servant. And one thing I was talking about somebody with uh, about was that actually, whenever people were speaking about him, they were speaking about his political achievements, his political CV, if you like. There was not scandal and there was not difficulty. It was how Alistair Darling navigated the financial crisis as Chancellor and then the independence referendum with Better Together. Um, so I think some reflection is necessary. And Andy, I know that you have a personal connection to Alistair Darling and his family. I also know that you've not spoken about his death since it was announced last week. And I know this is really difficult for you. But yeah, would you like to just take a minute and, and remember Alistair Darling with us? Yeah. Um, so Alistair is actually uh, my father's cousin. Um, his Alistair's mother, Anna, and my grandmother were sisters. Um, so our families often uh, came together on the island of Great Bernra, off the west coast of Lewis. In fact, that's where Alistair's lord title, Rowlanish, is from. It's the name of his uh, family home up there. So... Um, you know, of course, I'm, I know and I'm close to quite a lot of politicians, but obviously it's always been totally different with Alistair because, you know, to me, he was family rather than a politician. And I mean, I've seen him and Maggie uh, less in recent years as, as my own family's grown and kept me a bit busier. But my mother and father see Alistair and Maggie a lot. They're very close. They've always lived uh, close to each other in Edinburgh as well. In fact, Alistair 
was actually my mum and dad's MP for a time, which I always found uh, quite amusing. I'm not sure if they ever wrote in. Um, privately, in family settings, Alistair was actually just incredibly normal. He was very good company, incredibly loyal, uh, very welcoming, very relaxed, very hospitable. You know, when you went round to the house, it was a always a bit of a toss of the coin as to whether Alistair would put a, a glass of wine in your hand before Maggie put a piece of cake in your hand uh, or vice versa. Um but outside of the family side of things, he was really a pretty fascinating and remarkable politician. Not because he was clever and successful and all of that. He was all those things, but that's not really the point I'm trying to make. I think, you know, we know a lot of politicians and lots of politicians, let's be honest, do it because they seek limelight and power. Um, Alistair was totally different. He, not only did he not seek the limelight, he didn't really like the limelight, is the truth. He didn't, he didn't like it that much. What he did have was a pretty amazing sense of duty, I think. And, you know, he became Chancellor uh, for a global economic crisis and came out of it looking pretty good, which, you know, how, does, how, do, you, how do you do that? And, um, and then he took on the Better Together campaign, um, which, to be honest, caused him and the family quite a lot of strife and a lot of hassle before uh, or during and after that. And, you know, I always, I always find it funny how people in and around Downing Street at the time always pat themselves on the back about how they won the referendum. And I just think, you know, what a joke. You, it's like the Keystone Cops down there. It was Alistair that won the referendum, you know. I, I honestly think sometimes if it hadn't been for Alistair and the Better Together campaign, I think the unionists could easily have lost. I really do. Um, and I think, it, I think it's difficult to think of many more, I suppose what I would call quietly consequential politicians than Alistair. So um, <clears throat> politics obviously will miss him, but uh, not as much as the family, of course. Um, the wider family, uh, my mother and father will miss him terribly, um, but uh, in a very insignificant way, of course, compared to how much he'll be missed by Maggie and Callum and Anna, um, and he leaves a really an irreplaceable hole for them. I think that's that's a neat phrase, Andy. Quietly consequential is is just I think full of compliment, actually. And Jeff, that's an interesting consideration, I suppose, for you. I mean, I know you'll have some personal reflections, but I know you will also have some political reflections given his prominence in the independence referendum campaign as well. Yeah, and Andy, that was a, a fitting and, and lovely tribute uh, um, to, to Alistair. I didn't know Alistair on a personal level at all. I wouldn't claim otherwise. I did know him in a professional capacity. I met him a couple of times when he was Chancellor um, in his office in, in, in London. Um, uh, a very fair, straight, straightforward uh, politician when we met him. Um, but in the Better Together campaign, there's just one story I wouldn't mind um, sharing. And I mentioned that Recently, when we talked about Charles Kennedy on the Alex Cole Hamilton uh, podcast, that Charles Kennedy sought you out behind the scenes at question time and to always took an interest in you and asked, you know, what we were up to and what your hopes and aspirations were and all the rest of it. And I thought that was a, a mark of a very good and decent man. Um, I remember Alistair after the BBC debate, um, which, you know, he, he did really well against Alex Salmond in the STV debate, but I think... I think he even conceded himself in a, in a documentary that he took a bit of a, a hammering in the in, in, in the second one. And I remember we were leaving, and he, and, he, and as he was leaving, he said uh, uh, he said to me, "Oh well, uh, not long to go now, and we're all out of this." And we spoke for a you know very short period of time. And I just thought, you know, 
after taking what was a bit of a shellacking, you know, he still found the, the time to speak to an opponent or an advisor to an opponent. And I thought, yeah, you're you're, you're a pretty you're a pretty decent man indeed. And and I think Andy's absolutely right um, in terms of the Better Together campaign. Without him as the figurehead, it might have been a different story. You know, a, a very reliable, um, solid um, um, politician, but got results as well. Mm. And uh, my condolences to his uh, family and friends. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and from me also. And thank you both for um, yeah, for considering such an important person and the legacy as well. And I think actually just the lesson, as I say, within how we've remembered Alistair Darling for politicians today, because I think when you hear how people speak of Alistair Darling, how many of our politicians today will be spoken of equally as affectionately um, in that sort of way. And I just I feel like that is something to, to consider. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Uh, this is Hollywood Sources. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, lots to discuss. We want to get into some of the issues of the moment. We're going to be... Um, well, we're going to come back in a moment to discuss this emergency cabinet meeting that's taking place this evening around the budget, we understand. But I do want to start with education, actually, because this lunchtime at First Minister's Questions, the issue of education and Scotland's results in these global school tests, these PISA um, school test results and league tables and whatnot, has has really been blasted uh, by the Scottish Conservatives. Um, the SNP has been accused of destroying the school system. The First Minister's admitted there's a poor set of results in these PISA rankings. He's faced questions on what another expert's called a calamity facing Scottish schools. We understand the Education Secretary Jenny Gilruth will make a statement on it next week. Um, Andy, on education, first of all, these PISA results, they kind of look at secondary schools from dozens of countries around the world. They've pointed to significant falls in maths, reading and science performance in Scotland secondary schools since the year 2000. There is a 23-year decline in standards here. Yes, and I think um, that raises one important point, which is that um, the SNP absolutely have to take a share of the blame, but uh, this predates them. Um, And other political parties have not exactly been tripping over themselves to create something else. Everybody has been on a bit of a consensus wagon when it comes to education, um, and that needs to stop. Um, I think yesterday's results were in no way unexpected. It would have been remarkable had they been any different, and that's quite damning in itself that everybody expected the results yesterday to be bad, and indeed they were very, very bad. 
So the decline in Scotland's performance is equivalent to um, Scottish school children being eight months behind in reading, and that's the best bit where they were 16 years ago, and 18 months behind in science and somewhere in the middle in maths. So this is this is devastating. This is a, a, a trend going from excellent schooling to good schooling to very average schooling. We are now uh, bang average at educating children, and we are behind England um, on every measure. One of the most concerning things yesterday, I think, was the reaction, not of Jenny Gilruth, but of the Scottish Government at official level and the statement they put out. Because what they said um, immediately was Scottish education maintains its international standing. And I just saw that, and I was quite angry, actually, at that. I just thought that was the most incredibly complacent headline, which made me wonder... Do they get this? What do they actually want to do about this? This is a terrifying direction of travel for parents in Scotland. And I think one of the most difficult things is that we are doing this not by accident, but almost by design. We have designed our school system and our curriculum to deliver averageness and to deliver mediocrity. That is what we have done. We have done it deliberately. And I thought yesterday of a term that was coined um, by George W. Bush, actually written by a speechwriter, Michael Gerson, which was a famous um, soft bigotry of low expectations. We now have a school system which has institutionalized low expectations. Um, there is no more time to argue about whether we have a problem. We have a problem and it has to be tackled immediately because it is the biggest, not only is it a potential tragedy for parents and children, this is an economic catastrophe. If you cannot properly educate your children, that is a ticking time bomb for the future of the economy. There's a bit of a legacy consideration here as well, because Nicola Sturgeon made it her sort of defining mission to act on behalf of young people and to improve standards in schools. And what we're seeing here is that that has not worked. So her legacy is one of failure. And so does that speak to the word Andy used? Does that speak to an element of complacency? Well, I think Andy is right um, that it, uh, to, to a certain degree, predates some of the SNP, although I was in government when Curriculum for Excellence was uh, established. Um, I think the question for me is not, are these stats bad? Let's not have a disagreement about them. They are profoundly bad. And I accept they may just be one data set and there's others out there, but that's rather by the by. Uh, these figures show that we're going backwards and we're going backwards quite dramatically. What I didn't hear yesterday and what I really want to hear next week is what are we going to do about it? Now, we've talked a lot in this podcast with our guests um, about the need for perhaps some external advisory uh, from former politicians or even experts that are not uh, of any political persuasion uh, to support government in their core functions. Is there a case for doing that with education? My big fear here is we talked at the top of the show about the potential for an election, perhaps in May, uh, or perhaps more likely in October. Uh, either case, the political focus very quickly becomes uh, on that general election and winning it. And this is something that needs dealt with now. So I really hope the Scottish government are looking at this seriously and that they take forward a serious plan of action. I think Jenny Gilruth knows there's a problem. Um, 
Jenny Gilruth has been a teacher not that long ago. Um, and I think she's a pretty shrewd operator. And I think Jenny Gilruth knows there's a problem and a big one. And I think she wants to solve that problem. My question is, does the education secretary in Scotland have the power to solve that problem? Um, now, that seems like it should have an obvious answer, but it wasn't so very long ago that one of the most powerful figures in Scottish politics, John Swinney, was education secretary and tried to push through quite significant reforms uh, in schooling, including devolving a lot of power to schools, and was effectively stopped from doing that by the EIS. Our education establishment, the EIS, and to a degree the civil service, is extremely powerful and extremely resistant to change. And that is the big question for me. Is the government minister in charge, the cabinet secretary, are they in Scotland powerful enough to do what they want to do and to do what they think needs to be done to fix Scotland schools? I'm not so sure. Can I come in for a second? You've yeah, got go for kids it. that are going through curriculum for excellence. Mm-hmm. What are your observations on it? Um, my observations on the delivery of it are that it is uh, a significant step away from a focus on academic achievement. It is what you would, in a tabloid newspaper, call dumbed down. There is no question about that. You know, that is what is happening all the time in schools. It is a focus on expanding mediocrity. uh, And there is no excellence agenda at all. There is none. There is no focus on excellence. There is a focus on increasing the volume of mediocre attainers. That's what it's about. Now, I would contrast that, though, to what CFE was designed to be for. So there is a difference between how CFE was designed and how it has been implemented. Those two things are, I think, in conflict to each other. But the implementation of CFE, as I see it, as a parent, is what you would shorthand as dumbing down, but which you would uh, more um, reasonably, I think, call uh, a a significant reduction in focus on academia uh, and on attainment um, at at the expense of excellence in schools. So to your point then, Andy, if if Jenny Gilruth knew this was coming or felt it was very likely this was coming, hopefully they've got a a good understanding of why uh, it was coming and hopefully they've got a good understanding of what they're going to do to try and solve that particular problem. Now, I get the, the, the interactions with the unions and they may be obstacles in that, but ultimately she's the elected minister in the elected government and has to have the power to affect change. Otherwise, they'll be paying the price with their own careers. That's the way these things work in politics. So hopefully that next week isn't a case of, oh, well, we're going to, you know, play around the edges of this. We're going to tinker with that. And hopefully there is something there that's a bit more fundamental. Um, well, I, I hope so too. But I tell you what I would say. So Jenny Gold done some quite tough jobs. Transport is a horrible job to have to do. And she came out of it quite well. And she was pretty forceful and pretty shrewd and operated quite well in what is also quite a difficult space in transport. Um, If Jenny Gilruth is going to fix Scotland's schooling, she is going to have to upset a lot of people who the Scottish government has never wanted to upset before. Mm. And it's a huge test. That is a huge test. How do you you then balance that 
Jeff, because I'm kind of thinking, you know, one of the things that struck me, Jenny Gilruth, she kind of points to COVID and the profound profound impact of, of COVID on young people, which is all well and good, but actually Scotland was slower to, to get back in the classroom after COVID. English schools reopened in June 2020. Scotland was after the summer holidays. Then the second wave came. Sturgeon kind of announced that schools would reopen for vulnerable children and kids of key workers. The rest would go online. So, I mean, pointing to COVID isn't all that helpful either, because the Scottish government's record on that, albeit perhaps different ministers and whatnot. The Scottish government's record on that differs to England as well. Is this devolution failing? Well, no, I, I, I think, you know, COVID did have an impact. Um, of but course, it had an impact for every country. But the point uh, is every that, country. yeah, 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 but no, no, Scotland's no, no, behind so, England as a result of its no, choices. No, so, so, look, COVID had an, impact, had an impact in every country. My point is I don't think that that excuse carries much water, I'm afraid. Fair. Um, I, 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 to, to your actual point, though, I'm going to go back to, the, to something I said earlier. Mm. Um, and the balance needs to be here about uh, moving forward at pace, um, but equally, uh, I'd rather they got it right as well. So there's a balance yeah. between pace and making sure they get it right. And I'll go back to what we just said. Perhaps the time, therefore, is if you are going to upset some people, you need to bring some people with you. And having that independent uh, expert analysis that says, look, these guys represent all parties and none. They've been there and done it at the coalface of education uh, and this is what we're going to do. Wouldn't be the worst idea mm. um, and get them solely fixated on trying to uh, arrest these figures. Okay. So it's all eyes really on Jenny, Gil- Jenny Gilruth and her statement next week to massive see if she moment. can, can rise. That is a massive moment. And what does that mean for her kind of ministerial career? Because uh, is it fair to have we seen much of Jenny Gilruth as Education Secretary up until this point? I, I'm th- trying to think of moments. I'm, well, I'll tell you what this. the most important thing that she's done is, and this is to her great credit, is so PISA is one of three recognised international studies. The other two are Tim's and Pearl's. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and, and we withdrew from those uh, about 10-ish years ago, I think. So Jenny Gilruth said earlier this year that we're going back in. So that in itself was a very significant thing to do. That was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, resubmitting us. It's a classic case of if you don't, you know, if you don't want to know the answer, don't ask the question, right? But yeah. she is now putting us back into a situation where we are going to find out, I suspect, some very difficult answers to these questions when it comes to Tim's and Pearl's, the other uh, studies that are done. So to me, that is a signal that this is somebody who is uh, ready and willing to tread her own path here. Now, that is very positive. And, and, but- and to, add to, to add to your point, Andy, just what you were saying earlier, actually, and because she took that decision, which I agree was a significant decision, surely she must be prepared for the answers that she was mm-hmm. going to get. And though, So I'm assuming, presumably, there will be a plan of action in place to try and deal with it, you know, because why I, I, would you do I, that otherwise? Yeah. You know? I, I think so, and I hope so. But I, I would just go back to saying that, and to answer your question, Callum, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a big... Jenny Golusa is a high performer and somebody who's got a long time to go in politics and could go very, very, very far. Um, But this is a hard job. Education is a difficult job because A, it's not going well, and B, the vested interests are astonishingly powerful. Um, And if she's going to make an impression in it, well, that's going to be tough. And I'll tell you, um, it'll absolutely be the making of her if she does it too. 
Interesting. Uh, let's um, bear that in mind then. We'll reflect on whatever Jenny Gilruth gets at in her statement next week on the podcast. Join us for that uh, on Holyrood Sources. And the other thing then that we want to talk about is another Scottish government issue. This is a, a special meeting of the Scottish Cabinet, which is scheduled for this evening, Thursday evening. Um, it's been called as ministers face a budget black hole of at least £1 billion. Um, reports uh, from the BBC suggest that the Scottish government's struggling to make its £60 billion tax and spending plans work. It's said to be a collective issue, reports the BBC, and not a problem of agreeing a deal with Green Ministers who are in a power-sharing agreement with the SNP. This is Thursday the 7th of December. The Scottish budget is due on the 19th of December. Jeff, we already know about the council tax freeze. Notably, the Green Butte House Agreement deal is back up for discussion. Kate Forbes says that should be binned this week as well. Is all of is all of this part of the same picture then? The the budget problems, the special cabinet meeting, the Butte House Agreement. What's your take on what's your read on what this cabinet meeting's all about? Yeah, well I I, I reflect on my seven years in government. So I went through, you know, seven years where there was budgets uh, put forward, uh, four in minority government and uh, three in um, in a majority uh, government. Uh, and I never recall ever publicly convening an emergency meeting for a budget or John Swinney ever doing wow. that, rather. Yeah. And so I can only imagine the reason you do that is because they've got some serious issues uh, to discuss. I, I don't see necessarily what the political gain is in announcing that unless there is genuinely something that they need to, to announce and they thought, well, we better just get out ahead of it because it'll be leaked otherwise. So my view is there's going to be something pretty crowned in this budget. And whether it's about new thresholds or tax rises, I don't know if there's a disagreement uh, within that. Some people are, might be arguing on the cabinet table, look, we need to incentivise growth. And if we disincentivise people from coming here and working here, then we're not going to do that. You know, we all want to increase our tax base. Uh, but there'll be others that say, well, but the way uh, uh, to do that is to hit the, the, the more wealthy or the, the aspirational heavier, but they, they've got the biggest shoulders and all the rest of that. I don't know. Mm. Or is it something more profound than that? Is it something like the national care service, which only recently the unions were suggesting wasn't uh, uh, currently funded and didn't look like to be in the projections they saw. Or maybe there's a, a big cancellation of that. I'm not trying to I, I, I'm not speculating with any real insight here. I'm just saying sure, sure. clearly yeah. something is amiss before you've called this meeting in itself and only a week before the budget. I recall my time in government at this point in the, in the process, you were starting to work out, okay, you know, the politics of your budget and what you're going to try and do to try and uh, win over certain uh, uh, people that you may want to, 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 to do so, whether that was in the opposition or indeed in your own benches, you weren't necessarily discussing final decisions. Those had been mm. made, you know, what the general direction of travel was. So um, it is a fascinating move and it'll be interesting to see what comes out after it. You know, I, I suspect there'll have to be some sort of post-match uh, briefing after it and we'll see where mm. the, the situation lies. But clearly... There is a very, very challenging set of circumstances ahead. It is quite astonishing. Ten days before the budget, I mean 12, but, you know, ten days before. And I think your point there, Jeff, about having the meeting in the first place really raises awareness of the issue. And it is no small issue, Andy, is the other thing. A budget black hole of at least £1 billion. Pounds. Um how do you get out of that black hole? What is the answer here? And more than that, what do you think is the sticking point, actually, as a starting out point? 
Well, I mean, I think that 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 becomes a very interesting question because, um, and it, a little bit is a little bit of that is about the devolution settlement and the powers that have transferred over recent years because we have sort of quite quietly, without anybody talking about it too much, we have moved from being a parliament which is largely only responsible for spending money to a parliament which has become partially responsible for raising the money that gets spent as well. And I'm not sure that the Scottish government has always made the link between raising the money and spending the money. Uh, I'm not sure, in other words, that it is kind of emotionally adapted to the responsibility that it actually has. And I I think it will be interesting in that context to see what sort of narrative emerges from this. Um, Kate Forbes, you mentioned earlier on, she also, as well as the, the, the green stuff that she mentioned last night, she also made the point that many people have been making for a long time, which is that there is a limit to how far you can put taxes up before you actually start decreasing the size mm. of the pot that you generate, not increasing it. Um, I'm not sure how many people around that cabinet table um, have that sort of economic grounding where they have enough experience in the the you know the tax and spend agenda and how how it works how raising money works how tax works how incentives work um, and so i think it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of that ultimately when you are running a government where you are responsible for raising and spending one of the things which you have to have on the table is spending cuts and i do think that's an interesting part of the dynamic as well it's being you know it looks like it's presented to us in such a way as to say we have a black hole so we have to fill it well you don't have to you can actually look at your expenditure as a way to get around that as well it's not all just about generating more money sometimes it's about Mm. cutting spending that's what governments have to do and crucially to sort of just add in the other argument that floats around this do you andy give any credence to the suggestion that uh the scottish government has been left with too little money from westminster after the autumn statement by jeremy hunt um is is that valid (laughs) there will never be a time where you will get everybody agreeing on what the outcome of any budget statement in Westminster is, because the Westminster government will always say that this is a record funding round for the devolved nations, uh, and the Scottish government will always say that they are being shafted by Westminster. Um, and you know, no economist is particularly reliable on it either, because all economists are political. So you never actually get a straight answer on that. I think the only thing that is probably, in, I guess, I think, indisputable, is that Scotland receives, at this point, Scotland receives more per head than it contributes per head. So I think it is a difficult argument for the Scottish government to make that they are somehow being um, un, uh, harshly treated in terms of the Westminster settlement. I think that's a difficult argument to make in this context. Mm. Jeff, on that, actually, just to bring it back to council tax, which we discussed at length, this council tax freeze when it was announced at party conference, um, what, a month or two ago, um, is is that does that does that build on Andy's point of a lack of experience to make that announcement and then six weeks on to have to say, we've got a billion pound black hole here, while there were still questions about how the council tax freeze itself was going to be funded. Is that all part of that particular narrative? I mean, I mean, I remember we discussed it at the time, didn't we? And yeah. um, I think the, the, the biggest 
issue here, of course, is the one you're missing out is the Verity House Agreement, which preceded that yeah. um, some months before, in which uh, there was this historic agreement between COSLA, the umbrella for local authorities and the Scottish Government, that these types of decisions would not be made without due consultation uh, and with less government interference, i.e. less government diktat on them. And of course, uh, the, the council tax freeze was made, if, if the reports are right, rather last uh, minute. Mm. Um, that's the big issue here. And of course, that actually gives a bit of ballast to local authorities to really try and extract more from them, you know, uh, more from the Scottish government and uh, is the politics this. I mean, uh, we're, we're, fi- we're fighting a bit blind here, guys. We don't really know exactly sure. why this meeting was called. We don't really know what the, the decisions are that they're seeking to take tonight. But one thing that I think is really um, quite important is that there is a full agreement from the cabinet and indeed the backbenches and the SNP because the last thing the SNP need right now is another divisive um, issue. Um, It has not had its troubles to seek in recent times. Uh, And so whatever they do agree, it's really important. There's unanimity um, and a consensus uh, because one thing's for sure. Again, I make my point. We're going to go into a budget year that will incorporate a general election. Mm. Um, uh, It might be the last one. You know, who knows what's going to happen to the SNP vote. If some polls are to believe, there's been other more positive polls for the SNP, but it might even be the last one, the first and last that Hamza presides over, for goodness sake. So they have to be at least agreeing on a position because the politics of this could not be more um, sharp in terms of uh, 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 this particular budget, right? Do you know what I find really interesting, Jeff? Right, and you you'll have a perspective on this because you were you were in before, right? But a lot of the people who are running the government now, a lot of the people around the cabinet table, have and we've talked about this a bit before. They've never lost anything. They have no experience of losing. They are post twenty fourteen people. They've been riding the wave for basically a decade, and they're now plunged into a situation where everything is just hard all the time. You know, they're, they're going down in the polls. They're losing by-elections. There are budget problems. Uh, the UK government is kind of outfoxing them on some things like, you know, gender recognition and DRS and all that sort of stuff. It's just, it's not coming as easy anymore as it used to. It's not coming easily like it did in the sort of 2015, 2016, 2017 years where pretty much, you know, they could do whatever they wanted and everything life, and life was good. Life is kind of tough now for... The government, and I, this is just appeal, appears to me to be an entirely new experience for them, and arguably a little bit more like the experience that you would have had with Alec from seven to eleven, where things weren't so easy. You had to work a little bit harder for stuff. Yeah, well, I think the first observation is that before we won in two thousand seven, all we had done is lost. Uh, so um, uh, we were quite used to. Uh, sorry, you know, um, losing. Um, I know that feeling in terms of yeah, uh, but. <laughs> No, look. It's, it, listen. It's 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 a good it's a good observation, and um, I actually think one of the biggest difficulties that the current Scottish government f- faced right now is, is and I'm going to use this phrase that I've said before on this podcast time and time again. They are trying to be all things to all people, mm. and that takes its toll when you come round to budget discussions as well. There are no bad causes out there, guys. That's the thing when it comes to budget, people make their pleas, industry bodies and the third sector, the businesses. 
uh, there's no bad causes. They've all got a, a legitimate case to make. If you can't define who you are as a government and what you really stand for, then it's very hard to then justify your decisions. And then when you come to make those decisions, you're going to disappoint more people in that respect. And that's the biggest problem. I've said it time and time again for Mm. me, that we still haven't managed to really get an identity for the type of administration and the focus of um, uh, uh, his government in terms of Hamza's tenureship. And that perhaps is manifesting itself in these budget discussions. I don't know. Again, we're speculating, but... Uh, it's very difficult to then turn around and say, well, look, I'm not going to go for that because this is what we're going after. And that's a very good cause. But this is, you know, we are going solely after this and we can't pay for everything. But there seems to be a bit, oh, we'll do a little bit. You do it. Listen, it's a, it's a limited budget, guys. It's the nature yeah. of devolved politics. It's a tough place to be. And I just wonder if that's manifesting itself just now. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing how much of a thread, actually, and how many sort of constant threads there are through our discussions. And that is a really interesting one, Jeff, the kind of, you know, not defining yourself. And actually, it comes back to haunt you a bit at times like this. Uh, right. OK, so a couple of things then to look out for. So Jenny Gilruth's statement next week on education and whatever the outcome of this emergency cabinet meeting is this evening as well. Uh, we'll keep an eye on all of that for you. Um, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Andy. Just to mention once again, then, the event that we're doing with the Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce and Energy Spe- special at the end of January, which, um, by the way, is just the first event that we can announce for the new year. Lots more news to come on that. If you'd like to be first to know about other events in 2024, then you can sign up to the mailing list on the website, hollywoodsources.com. You can keep in touch. You can email us, hello at hollywoodsources.com to have your say on all that we're talking about or to ask questions or pop by and say hello. And we will talk to you again next week. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.